The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everybody to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. Obviously this is John McAndrew again, your your guest host and today's show is called A Journey Through Recovery with guest Lynn Garson. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lynn And uh, before we speak with her. She has graduated from Tulane University, has a degree in art history, also has a law degree from Emory University School of Law. She's lived all over the world, and her story is very, very interesting, and, and I could read on and on. I'm going to let her tell you more of the details. She currently practices health, she's a practicing healthcare attorney with a law firm in Atlanta, I believe. Uh, recently, that's right. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And recently, Lynn published her first book, and it's called Southern Vapors, and it chronicles. This is very brave of her. Her rise and fall from silver spoon to straitjacket and back. And right, that sentence says a lot. She details the privileges of her upbringing, the slow decline that saw her treated in a low-income mental health facility, and her empowering comeback. And she's going to share with us her book and also kind of what she currently does. And uh, her passion is to really influence some positive change and encourage more people to kind of talk about the, these health care issues, these mental health issues. So please uh, welcome to the show, and we, and we thank you very much, Lynn, for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you. You know, I want to add my voice to all the people who are already out there uh, trying to make their voices heard on this issue. And as you and I were talking before the show, in my view, I've, I've never seen anything quite like this in terms of being a Teflon issue. It's like nothing mm-hmm. sticks. <laughs> I don't care who throws it up on the wall. I don't care how many Catherine Zeta-Joneses and, uh, oh, Lord, I mean, how many people have come out in the last couple of years and said, I'm going into the hospital for bipolar. I'm going into the hospital for depression. Mm-hmm. You know, the list goes on and on and on, and yet I see it sort of evaporating into the mist every time there's just a little traction, and you think, oh, we're going to sit down and have a conversation finally. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's like wisps of smoke. Why, why, a couple of questions. Why do you think that happens, and why do you think we need to have the conversation? Uh, we talked about this before the show. All of us have personal experience with mothers, brothers, fathers, sons, daughters with mental health issues, and it seems that it's at the bottom of the list as far as priorities for our country to take care of each other in this manner. So why, why does it... 
why has it become a Teflon issue, and why do we need to continue conversation? Well, I mean, first of all, if everybody's happy with the status quo, we don't need to talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if everybody's yeah. just fine with people not having access to care, people committing suicide because they're afraid to tell people what's going on, um, if we're okay with that, then by all means, let's keep going the way we're going. But mm-hmm. if we're not okay with that, and I think a lot of people aren't, then the only intelligent way to deal with it, like anything, is to sit down and put everything out on the table and talk about it. You know, there are answers that make sense. There are answers that don't make sense. But you can't figure out which is which unless you let everybody put it all out on the table and you start hashing through it. It's mm-hmm. like anything. It's the same conversation with gun control and gun violence. Um, and the best thing I ever heard said about that is let's get it all out on the table. Right. I don't care how diametrically opposed you are to somebody else's views. And believe me, on that issue, as I watched that unfold, I felt like I was living in Mars. I mean, I couldn't believe some of the things that were being said. But then I thought, how am I going to understand what a great deal of this country believes if I don't just sit there and listen to them? Mm-hmm. You know, just because people don't think the way I do doesn't mean they're automatically wrong. So I think the same thing with a lot of the mental health conversation is we, we need to sit down and talk about it. Um, why we don't is puzzling to me, but it's puzzling for a very specific reason. You know, you said very nicely, and I appreciate in the introduction that I'm brave to have written this book. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, you know, people say that to me, and mm-hmm. I laugh because I got, you know, I, had, I got slammed by a few things in my life. But one gift, and it's a pure gift that I got given, is that I don't feel stigma about having had mental illness. I have no issue with it. And I have no issue that I've been to hospitals and gotten treated for it. So to me, I guess maybe what was a little bit brave was facing down my family because the book was divisive and, you know, I was really worried that I was going to lose some relationships. But Mm -hmm. in terms of just speaking in public about this, I have no problem. So For me, I have to step outside of that to try and figure out why this is such a problem for so many people. And I have to remember that people, you know, everybody feels like they want to be part of the group and and they want to be mainstream by and large. And mental illness is not mainstream. And it can be frightening. It can be overwhelming. Uh, Certainly, there are people, and I I think this is still very true, who feel that it is a stain on the family name and and don't want to touch that. They don't want to admit that they've got a child or a parent or a spouse or a sibling who's got uh, bipolar or depression and who's or uh, substance abuse. You know, it's something to be hidden. Um, mm-hmm. Now, to me, and and that's a I make this point fairly um, vocally in the book. Whatever was hidden in my life and whatever I was forced to keep a secret. Boy, did that burn me. I mean, it, I don't mean burn in the terms of it made me mad. It hurt me. And it, I only was able to get healthy when I brought those things out into the light. So I think a lot of people are going to stay unhealthy to the extent they can't bring this out into the light. Right. 
And many people that many of our listeners are familiar with dual diagnosis and substance abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction, and the mental health issue, and they really go hand in hand. And it's interesting in the family dynamic, uh, I think a lot of our listeners would agree, maybe some not, but quite often, well, the drug addiction, okay, and alcoholism, but then not mental illness, not those scary words, bipolar and, God forbid, schizophrenia and all these different things. And right. it, it is, it's a family disease, which makes your story is so interesting. Part of it because of your family, and, and you sort of alluded to it. And, you know, maybe we can start this little journey. I, I love the title, Southern Vapors, and um, you pretty much start the book in Chapter 1, which is called The Strong Case of the Vapors. And um, you want to kind of start us a little on the journey through the book and uh, don't tell us everything, but what is is a strong case of the vapors? Uh, Somebody asked me that recently, and the, the best way I can relate that is most people have seen Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And if you remember Melanie, not Scarlett, but her, her sidekick Melanie, who was very delicate, and she's the type of Southern woman who would be prone to the vapors, which is where you put drape your, your hand or your arm over your forehead and you lean your head back and you say weakly, oh, I don't think I can bear this anymore. Uh, you know, that's the typical case of the vapors where you, you really just take to your bed. You're like, I'm done. Can't do this. No, thank you. And, you know, bring me some bonbons and check in with me later. Uh, and and that was me from time to time in my life, you know. But I had this marvel. I, I always had multiple sides to my personality, as I think everybody does. I had a wonderful friend in law school who said, yeah, I was like that. But then I was also the kind of person that as I'm lying on my couch, somebody would come and say, you know, somebody over there did something. you got to go up and take care of it. And here's the gun and you need to go shoot him. And I would get up from my couch or my bed and take the gun and go do what I needed to do and come back and drape my arm over my head. So, you know, I was very competent at at the same time, which is why I'm still a lawyer, you know, and have been able to keep that going. Um, but the book, uh, you're right, it chronicles a journey that has much to do with family. Um, and, and I make this point fairly frequently that there are many of us many people like me who don't necessarily have true clinically uh, medical diagnoses that that should be applied to us. We have things, and and I have things, that greatly mimic that, but Mm -hmm. that come out of a very dysfunctional family life that did not, in my case, prepare me well for handling and, and coping with anything at all. And, uh, you know, it it displayed itself with some radical coping skills like binge eating disorder and uh, codependency and all kinds of unhealthy ways that ultimately um, tanked me to the point that I ended up in hospitals with a a, an absolutely gigantic case of hopelessness, despair, and existential crisis, but really not necessarily a diagnosable disorder. 
but I have been diagnosed with many. Right. But yeah, they can't which nail, is, I mean, and the way dollar. I've worked back to that is I never responded in 30 years to any of the medication. So I don't think that mine was what they call a brain disease. I think it was, uh, and, but I don't think it matters so much. It, it, what really matters is that you are able to tell what's going on with someone. So how do you address it? Is it medication? Is it talk therapy? Is it coping skills? Is it a combination? And that's yeah. where we fall incredibly short. Well I, well, I couldn't agree more on that because, I mean, the first uh, response generally is medication. Yeah, yeah. And, and to do that, they need to nail a little plaque on your forehead so they can put you in the right line. Right. Um, and your experience, I mean, it's just that the South is incredible <laughs> on its own. Your journey as someone speaking about mental illness, tell us about life as a princess because... <laughs> a lot of us kind of think we know what that is, and what we don't realize is what's behind all those doors, you know. And you really you, what, you, what you're asking okay. is not the obvious, um, having really nice dresses and exactly. uh, traveling and doing this, that, and the other. You're asking me what some of the downside is to yeah. life as a princess. Yeah. Well, let me first describe it because... Um, I am the beneficiary of a lifestyle that really has not been enjoyed by many. Um, it's not like a Paris Hilton, you know, or a, what are those Kardashians on TV? Right. You know, it wasn't a matter of having 14 jet planes and, and flying to Cannes every 10 seconds, but it it was an extraordinary lifestyle in a house that really looked like Tara. We had upstairs help and downstairs help, and a a lady who did our laundry who literally came with the property. She lived in a log cabin with her husband on the property before my parents bought it, and that's where she lived after they bought it. And she came and did our laundry and wore um, the uniform most of the time and carried a switch and would switch me and my brother, you know, if we weren't acting right, and then she'd switch the dogs. I mean, you know, it it was an extraordinary place, Um, you know, it was typical in some ways, although maybe mm-hmm. more luxurious and more extravagant than most, but in that we had people who worked for my family who raised me and my brother. Right. In the South, it was not unusual, no matter you know if you were comfortable or, or better than comfortable, it wasn't unusual to have people come in and, and take care of your kids and, yeah. and really be a stand-in while the mother went and did charity work or played cards or played golf or, you know, did any of those sorts of things. It was pretty, pretty average that way. But we traveled extensively and we traveled in a style that was, I mean, just suites of rooms and, you know, waiters and, and people. And uh, I remember we would travel first class, you know, even Atlanta to New York any any time. And I had suits that I wish I had now and little white gloves as a little girl. And my mother wouldn't ever let me eat. And the food was just phenomenal. We're talking first class on the airlines in 1960. But we would have a reservation at some fancy restaurant wherever we were getting to. So I would sit there on the airplane gnawing my lip, you know, out of starvation. And then we, we will we'll let our listeners, we're going to take a little break here. 
just kind of keep that little image in their minds. We've been okay. talking yeah, to Lynn Garth, and we're going to take a break. We're, uh, this is one hour at a time. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Better communication means better relationships in every sense of the word. When you communicate more effectively and interact more effectively, your life is lived more effectively. Tune in to Talk Time with Trish, featuring host Trish Ferrante and co-host Lisa Stewart. Our program is all about the human element. We are all comprised of parts and stuff that we may be aware of or others may be aware of. When we become aware of what others are aware of, it means more to us. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is John McAndrew, and we've been talking with Lynn Garson about her book, Southern Vapors, I want to remind the listeners that there is a website for the book, which is www.southernvapors.com, and you can get all sorts of information about Lynn and what she's doing now and about the book. And when we left Lynn, she was in the airplane traveling, A sort of a luxurious lifestyle, uh, biting her lip instead of being able to eat all the wonderful food. And I, I think in this section of our show, we'll talk about, you know, your journey, Linda, the first time that you went into an institution and kind of how you got there and, and what happened. Well, it's interesting. It's a perfect lead-in because talking about not being able to eat, the first time I went into a hospital was in 2000, and it was for eating disorder. Okay. Um, and I, I really didn't know that treatment was available, which sounds idiotic, but it's true mm-hmm. because I had no one around me who ever encouraged me to seek that kind of thing or, or talk to me about it. Um, as a young person, I remember saying that I wanted to go see a psychiatrist. I was about 16, and I was told, we don't do that. We don't handle our things in public. If we have any problems, we do it in private. And I never went to see anyone till I was 29, so that was 13 more years of trying to get through this by myself. 
Um, but, you know, a lot of what you and I were talking about, the, the idea of the perfect little girl, right. everything was about image. Everything was about image. If you looked good and you were thin, you were golden. You know, there could not be any other problems. And that was, that was what was placed in front of me as, as this is what you do from the time I was very small. And I struggled with that as a, as a child and later because, you know, when you're very young, you don't have a choice and you take in what you're told. And it's taken me about 50 years to get rid of all the things that were uh, – tapes that were in my hard drive, if you will, from a very, very early age. And unfortunately, I didn't have that many good, healthy tapes in there to to lead me into better paths. So uh, the first time I went to that hospital, it was because I was so deeply depressed and, and had struggled and struggled. And in fact, what had happened is I had been on one of those nail-biting white-knuckle diets for six months, had gotten very thin, and something tipped me over the edge, and I started eating and could not stop and was gaining, gaining, gaining weight, which had been a pattern of my life. Right. And I went in the hospital. I was like, help. Um, and so it was the first time I ever went in anywhere like that, and it was an extraordinary experience. You were 29 years old? No, no, no. This 29 uh-huh. is the first time I went to see a therapist. I was uh-huh. probably 40. Eight when I first went in the hospital. Okay, all right. Yeah. Wow. So that's an experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was an experience to have that door slammed closed behind me. And I will never forget. I, I think I was going to Weight Watch. I, in my head, I thought it's going to be like Weight Watchers or, or Overeaters Anonymous. And, you know, they'll give me some meal plans and I'll talk to people and this will be really nice. And then I walked down this long hall And the first person I saw, she must have been in her early 20s. Most of the people there were between, say, 14 and 28. And I'd never seen anyone thinner outside of a movie of the Holocaust. And she was in a wheelchair, and she had a pick line and a, a tube to give her nutrition because she was on the anorexic end of things and bulimic and, and hadn't, you know, she'd been very, very sick. And that was my introduction to, um, you know, being in a hospital. Wow. Pretty stark, huh? Right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, but it was great because there there is such community. You know, many people I've talked to feel the same way. You go through some of these things and you feel so isolated because no one in the, quote, world gets it. Nobody understands you. Nobody gets it. Nobody knows why you're, you know, either sticking your finger down your throat to throw up or drinking too much alcohol or why you can't stay in a relationship or why you can't get out of bed. Nobody, it's like, you know, pull yourself together. What's the matter? And all of a sudden, you walk into a place and there are any number of people who, in their core, understand what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Was that and it, it's extraordinary. Yeah, and it's, it's the opposite of what's going on with your family, isn't it? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. To this day, with having written the book and and everybody's come to terms with that and and been in varying degrees supportive about it, um, my mother being the most supportive and and really has been lovely about it, but still to this day, I can bring up like a couple of months, maybe three, four months. Okay, are you there? Okay, brought up um, that I had finally achieved being off of all medication, no more psych meds, including a blood pressure medicine that who knew, you know, had those elements to it. So I got off of everything. And I was so pleased and so proud of myself. And I was at dinner with my family, my family of origin, including my brother and his family. And I said this much, you know, I'm so excited. You would have thought that I had jumped up in the table and stood on my head and and done something completely inappropriate. There was no response, and somebody changed the subject. (laughs) I was like, can you not even respond to that to this day? Yeah. And the answer is no. I think that that's a... uh... A very vivid example. We've had guests on the show that talk about evidence-based practices for mental health and substance abuse. And, you know, they've done all the research. And, of course, it's not rocket science. They found out that family is one of the most important things, that the family get educated and recover along with a, with a participant or a patient. And, and, you know, when that happens, recovery is stronger, longer, better, to talk, you know, to teach the family about what, what, what the problem is, and then what the solution is, so that you. Well, can to me, that's a utopian world. Although I yeah. talk to a lot of people who, you know, I talk to a number of parents who are in the trenches with their kids, and you know, obviously, my hat's off to them. I will say, for those who fall into my camp who don't have that, yeah. the goal, and it is achievable, is you surround yourself with people whom you choose to make your family. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you get rid of your old family, but they are not the people you will learn that you can count on, you know, and to even to say something like what I said and to get the kind of response you want. So you have other people that you do that with, and in my case, I at a certain level, have made my peace with that. I don't know that I'll ever be happy with it. I don't know that it will ever be what I wanted, but it is the way it is, and I understand that that's my reality and that that's not going to change. So you came, uh, how long were you in the first facility, and then you, obviously you came home, right? And and what happened when you came home? Oh, it was it was sad. I was there for three weeks. For the entire three weeks, I was. You, know, you people aren't used to this, but you can use the word clean and sober. Those clean and sober with respect to food abuse as well as <laughs> drugs and, and alcohol. So I had been completely clean with my food. Not even an issue. I didn't even have to fight to be clean while I was in that facility. And the day I walked out, it was like I'd never been there. Uh, and and I went right back to abusing and and had a very difficult time and uh, somehow got myself back on an even keel and and got myself a little bit healthier after a while. But I learned some things in that facility though that led to my being able to recover long term. I, I for the first time was able to examine patterns of anger in my family and patterns. You know, where did this come from? And I started to track certain things that had had a huge impact on me. 
and was finally able to see that it wasn't just that I was defective, which had, of course, been the pattern of my thinking for all the years before that. Mm -hmm. You have a great term in here. Well, I laughed at it anyway, but uh, (laughs) Susie Marmalade. Oh, Susie Marmalade. Tell us about Susie Marmalade. With pleasure, because you said (laughs) that you like the title Southern Vapors, but for probably eight months, my working title was Susie Cream Cheese Goes Inpatient. And you say you're a musician, but you probably aren't old enough to know who that is. I, uh, yes, I am. You are? Okay. Well, Frank Zappa's fictional groupie was Susie mm-hmm. Cream Cheese. Yeah. And from the minute I heard that name, I said, that's me. I don't care what his definition of Susie Cream Cheese was. That was me. It perfectly explained this chick with the wide-eyed innocent, you know, who at the same time was fairly competent. It, it was just all rolled into one. That I wanted that name for my book so badly, and I spent months trying to get in touch with the Gail Zappa Foundation and the right. Zappa State, and she never would do it. So after a long, long time, I came up with Susie Marmalade being a name that was equally edgy, you know, it sort of encapsulated that wide-eyed innocent who also had an edge. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what that is meant to be. It's Susie Cream Cheese and Lucy in the Sky with, diamond, you know, Marmalade Skies of the Beatles. So edgy, out yep. there, um, white chick cheerleader. There we go. <laughs> so, We've been talking with Lynn Garson about her book, Southern Vapors, and... Uh, She's sharing her journey through recovery from, um, well, she's told us a story, and it's very fascinating. I don't want to give any more away. We're kind of halfway through this little journey, and we, when we come back, we'll pick up on the, the Susie Marmalade and uh, Inpatient again. We'll be right back. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We've been talking with Lynn Garson. We've been talking about her book and some of the stuff she's doing currently. And I want to remind listeners that her website is www.southernvapors.com. That's S-O-U-T-H-E-R-N-V-A-P-O-R-S.com, Southern Vapors. And you can find out information about the book, but you can also contact uh, Lynn personally there if you have any questions for her for you or your family uh, any kind of issue she's more than happy to to follow up with you and it's a great way uh, being an attorney and we're going to talk about that sort of in the last uh, segment today she's very passionate and active in uh, kind of bringing this subject into a little bigger print little bigger sized uh you know print and we appreciate her doing that and when we left uh land we we were kind of finishing up on Susie Marmalade and the chapters in your book all have really great titles and and I mentioned it earlier in the introduction uh, what a great writer you are and that really helps you know people to pick up a book and want to read you know and and I know Susie Marmalade goes impatient again. And then the chapter five is suicide by blender. And um, <laughs> it gets pretty serious right in here. And, and if you might just take us a little farther into the journey into sure. your second hospitalization and, and some of those stories. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because so far I've really described having an eating disorder and um, having depression. But in 2007, uh, it, I, on the heels of a divorce that left me feeling very isolated and marginalized in a community that was not one where I had a lot of support, I got further and further out on the edge, and I really got to the point where I was pre-suicidal, meaning that I remember driving down the street one day and seeing a car coming towards me and thinking, I wonder, you know, if that car might turn my way or, or what would happen if I went into his lane, it, that wouldn't yep. be so bad uh, if if it were an end to it all. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have, uh, you know, and that's one of the first things they ask you in the hospital is, did you have a plan? And I didn't, but I, I was on my way. I was on my way. Um, and I was at a point where I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't breathe, meaning couldn't catch a, a good breath. Um, I walked around like I was in a, a that kind of flu feeling all the time, and this went on for six months, and I just wound down lower and lower. I used to have to lie down on the office floor just to breathe, to try to breathe, and then I'd get up, and I was a lawyer at that time, and write another contract and it it got to the point where it it was a serious question whether life was worth living at that quality of life and I got to the point where I knew I needed to go somewhere or I was not going to keep living so I went into a hospital in Baltimore called the Retreat at Shepherd Pratt 
um, it's a private pay institution, and I was lucky enough to have my family pay for it. I couldn't have afforded it. And over the course of 10 weeks in the summer of 2008, they pretty much put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Wow. wow. Yeah, they did. I, I remember the first three weeks there, I cried. I did nothing but cry. I, I mean, hysterically. And I'd been crying. I, I think I made up for a lifetime of really not being a crier in late 2007 and first half of 2008 because I cried volumes and buckets uh, on a daily basis. But after about three weeks, I started to get a little traction and started you know, to be able to raise myself up off the ground and, and maybe see the grass. You know, I was at that level, at least. What were the the main ingredients, do you think, that, that enabled you to get back up on your feet and in in to stay at that particular institution or hospital? Well, first of all, community. Like I said mm-hmm. before, there was a great community of people there. Um, I think that... I was introduced to a teaching. Uh, do you know what DBT is? Absolutely. Okay, not DBT. I, I just said that to try and get you in the right mindset for this. Mm-hmm. It is an offshoot of DBT that is not very widely practiced, and I don't really understand why. It's called ACT, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment therapy or something like that. And what it is basically is if you are a person who dwells in your head a lot, as I was and continue to be, you know, people can say to you all they want to that until you deal with your emotions, you're never going to get better. That's true. But Mm -hmm. for some people, the way to their emotions is through their head. It's never going to happen another way. And it never would have happened another way for me. I have to get there through my head, and I'll give you an example. What okay. this teaching tells you is that, or system, I don't know what to call it, um, you are able to literally get distance from yourself, and you listen to your own thoughts. And if I have a thought that says, I am so uh, worthless, I can't do anything right. Look at that contract I wrote today, and I made a mistake on it. How stupid could anyone be? You learn at a certain point with, I did with this particular kind of approach to recognize that, step away a little bit and say, stop. What, you know, there are any number of little responses to that. One is, what does that kind of thinking serve? What purpose does it serve? Does it serve any positive use for me? If it doesn't, then stop because I am not about anymore making myself feel worse and worse and worse. I mean, that used to be a goal in my life, not consciously. I wouldn't have known that I was doing that, but unconsciously, I spent a great deal of time making sure that I felt terrible. And since that is no longer the goal, and I know it's not, when I have thoughts like that that take me back into the old tapes, I can say, no, no, not doing this anymore. I don't feel, do I feel like a bad person? Am I really stupid? No, I'm not. I made a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. And it it gives you, it gives me anyway, a way to reframe my thoughts and to take those positive, those negative uh, loops that looped and looped and looped around in my head and to stop them and to replace them with something that is more realistic 
and that's more beneficial to my health. Yeah. I think the DBT people found in that journey that it was really helpful to just accept who you are. This is who I am. Well, that's why this is an offshoot of DBT, because the first word is acceptance. Instead of trying to be, uh, I'm going to fight this, which is, we all know, the ego and pushing and trying to fix it yourself, all kind of backfires. And I think you've described that really beautifully. Uh, You know, part part of it is the acceptance, and then... Well, thank you, but in that example, there you go, because if you're going to fight it, you're going to go, I wasn't stupid. It wasn't dumb. Uh, Yes, it was a mistake, but but it was a thus-and-so kind of mistake. The acceptance is, yeah, I made a mistake. Okay. You know, keep on going. And that was, as a a child of a perfectionist um, and a a fairly dyed-in-the-wool perfectionist or a recovering perfectionist myself, that was hard for me to accept. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. In and fact, I had a friend in that hospital, uh, a good friend, and we would have conversations in group therapy, and we both agreed that perfectionism was a good thing. He was, I think he was a, an accountant or a CPA, and I was a lawyer, and, and we both agreed, well, that's why we're good at what we do, because we are perfectionists. Well, six months later, he had killed himself. So um, he's one of those people, I think I wrote, I still carry his uh, number in my phone. I can't get rid of it. Uh, and I think, I'm not saying being a perfectionist is the only reason he's dead, but it it's not a useful. Uh, when you carry it to an extreme, it's not useful. Mm-hmm. You wrote in Chapter 9, and well, you know, Suicide by Blender, that that describes some of the things that you experience while you're in a hospital like that. Um, well, do you want me to say real quickly what that is? Yeah, I, I do. Suicide by Blender, just real fast. I came home from the hospital in Atlanta, which was my third inpatient experience. Um, it was in 2010, not long ago. And I couldn't find my mini blender. And I drink a protein shake every morning. So I'm looking, looking, and, and, and then I start looking and unusual, you know, in the shower and the, you know, wherever, thinking, you know, I'd just gone into a mental institution. Maybe I wasn't thinking right. And finally, I talked to my cousin, and they had sent her and uh, a, her daughter-in-law had come over to empty my house of anything that could be used to kill myself. And that included the mini blender, which if you could see the blades on this mini blender, you would laugh. Oh, so God. Well, they meant suicide well. suicide by blender. So they cleaned out your apartment. Oh, well, I didn't have, I mean, there wasn't a knife, a razor blade, nor a, a mini blender to be seen. Yeah. You, um, and we have a few minutes left in this in this section, and I don't want to give the whole book away, but it's really a journey about really important things. And, and I, I think... Recovery generally is people telling their stories. Um, I think most of us trust each other when we know they've been through this, you know, that they've been to the hospitals you've been to. But you talk in Chapter 15 about fear, Mm. and uh, I think this is really something a lot of people relate to and definitely the things that we need to reframe in our head because I think a lot of it comes from fear. Mm Mm-hmm. What 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 motivated you to write this chapter? This chapter is really powerful, by the way. Hmm. What motivated? Well, what motivated me to write the whole book was, I think, anger. It fueled a lot of the book, and mm-hmm. a lot of my um, 
uh, I mean, I wrote sometimes for hours and hours, and I had such energy for this. And I think a lot of that energy came from just so angry that no one would hear me and no one seemed to want to listen. And, you know, God damn it, you know, here it is, you know, once and for all, and nobody can say this didn't happen to me because I'm writing it all down. Um, now, the fear chapter, I, for so many years, I was afraid that if I looked at some of these deep issues in me, it would kill me. Yeah. I was I was that afraid. I really did think that I could die from this. And I'm not sure that I was wrong, because I think I've had the most amazing capacity to know when I was ready to deal with something and not to address it before then, because I think my mind could have gone away and never come back. And I wow. always knew that. And so I never did, I never brought anything up from my subconscious until I could handle it. That's, uh, we're going to stop right there, and uh, I think that describes fear pretty well. You know, I'm afraid to do that. I may die if I bring yeah. these things up. We've been talking with Lynn Garson about her book, Southern Vapors. Uh, it's an incredible book, and you can find it at www.southernvapors.com and in bookstores. We'll talk a little more about that when we come back, and I'm going to ask Lynn about what she's doing today with the experiences that she's had because she has a she has a very special blend of talents which uh, can bring the issue of mental health uh, mental health to the forefront we'll be right back Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Listen every week for Mental Health with Dr. Sarita Rao. Our program focuses on behavioral health issues like depression, dependence on drugs and alcohol, anger management, stress, and other challenges. From ADHD to bipolar disorder, we'll want to hear from you with questions and experiences to share. That's Mental Health with Dr. Sarita Rao, live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Find out more. You don't need to deal with this alone. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back. Uh, this hour has gone way too fast. We've been talking with Lynn Garson, uh, a very interesting story that she's written. Her book is called Southern Vapors, and she shares very honestly and, and openly about her life uh, growing up um, from Silver Spoon to Straight Jacket and back. And uh, the book... Um, Lynn, where else is it available? I, I, the website is www.southernvapors.com. Where else is the book available? Um, Amazon, and it's available on Kindle and Nook. Otherwise, it's not in bookstores. It's not. I went the independent route, so um, it is not in bookstores, but you can get it online easily. And also, you encourage people, and this is really a great opportunity. Um, I know that you... You continue your work as a healthcare attorney, and you share your story. And um, you, you know, your wish or mission is to influence some positive change. Now, people can contact you personally, right, at the website. Right. Correct. Uh, if they have a question, if, a if they've got an issue, if if they want to hear more about what I was talking about, the the kind of therapy that I found helpful to me, anything, mm-hmm. anything at all. Okay. And where are you today with, um, we talked at the very beginning uh, when we introduced ourselves, uh, you're very, you have a lot of strong feelings about getting this message out that people need to be able to have access to care and mental health, I mean, specifically, we need to talk about it. Are you doing anything in particular? Do you have any events coming up or you're planning to? Well, one thing I did recently is I gave a TED Talk at Emory. They did, you know, they're the big TED Talks, and then all over the world they've got different TED Talks. Um, and a lot, most of it was on stigma and, you know, what I think about stigma in, in the mental health arena and how we can try to, to start digging ourselves out of that hole. Um, I watched the President's White House Conference on Mental Health on June 3rd. Third, I think it was either the first or the third. It was very recent, and he had a panel including Glenn Close, who's got a big um, campaign to bring an end to stigma. And somebody in the audience asked her how far she thought we had come on the issue of stigma, and she said, "We have hardly budged." Uh. And I think that's right. And I think that people are going to have to stand up and just hack away at this because it is not going to happen with one person. Like I said, uh, you see all these different people stand up and talk about it, and then the next day it's like it never happened. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people to listen to the TED Talk. I have a rather unique idea about how we use too many words that, unconsciously stigmatize mental illness every single day. Count You start counting how many times you go, that's crazy. She's nuts. That is insane. That nearly drove me out of my mind. Start doing that and see how many times you say that in a day. How about in three hours? And ask yourself whether that doesn't mean something. You know, I don't think we use words that we don't mean. And I think that this stigma is buried so deeply in our collective psyche that those words are commonplace, and I think they are more used than any other language that stigmatizes something that we use. And the messaging. That's just a quick thought. 
Well, it, it's very, very true, and um, we've had people on this show that talk about that. I know at, at Westbridge, for example, they call the the people that go there, and I, I have to watch my language. I, I go to treatment centers sometimes, and I call them inmates, you know, as a joke, mm-hmm. uh, and I need to be. But they call the people participants, you know, and they have something. They aren't something. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we have a disease, and... Uh, it takes a lot of attention, and I think many people aren't willing to pay that much attention to the language that they use. But I just think it's one way that we, uh, you know, stigma is there in a hidden way that we don't even think about. Um, as far as what I want to do and am doing, there's a local facility that I'm thinking of getting involved with so that I can be very active in this community. I'm also looking for ways just to join the national conversation about mental health and again as you said the more people who will stand up and say look at me I've been in three different mental institutions I'm a practicing attorney I have a good sense of humor you know I don't have three heads look at me you don't have to be afraid of me right and it's a you know it's a way of life to be in recovery I I think that we used to think um, we'll put you in a jet and send you someplace where there's a palm tree Mm-hmm. and you'll get a therapist or you'll get whatever you need, and then you're going to come home and you're going to be okay. Again, the family won't talk about it, and it's like it never happened. And uh, this approach of changing the language and changing the way we deal with mental health and substance abuse, it's something we just need to do every day. Well, you're absolutely right, and I finally came to accept that after much kicking and screaming. When I, The reason I ended up back in the hospital in Atlanta was I would not listen to the people in Baltimore who told me how much ongoing therapy I needed. And now that I've accepted it, I go to group therapy once a week, individual twice a week, and I go to a spiritual practice on Sunday. So that is four times a week that I'm supporting my mental health by an active, you know, engaging in something like that. And uh-huh. it, it, you know, yeah, I wish I could be sitting home reading a novel, but that's not how my life is. And I want my life to stay as, as stable as it is now. I, I, uh, I wanted to just talk real briefly, and, and we have a couple minutes left, but about the last piece of the puzzle, and, and, and you bring up a big word right away um, about forgiveness. And uh, can you share your kind of perspective on that? Because it's a pretty big deal, forgiveness. Well, I am a bit of an outlier on that. In terms of forgiving myself, that that to me is the hugest deal. Right. And I think I've done a pretty good job with that. Where I come out with some other people is, to me, forgiveness can mean being neutral. It doesn't necessarily mean that I open my heart and, uh, you know, oh, it doesn't matter that this happened and I understand why you did it and you know, if I can get to the point of neutral, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> so I think maybe you need to talk to somebody else about uh, true forgiveness in the biblical sense. Well, uh, you know, that's a great start, being neutral, yielding. You know, right, right. Now, I've gotten rid of the really damaging, intense feelings, but whether I've... Uh, true forgiveness, I think, really means that you 
put that to the side and you can love that person and understand with all of their flaws and all that. And yeah, I'm sort of moving in that direction, but I'm not there yet with everybody. Okay. If you, um, and I, and I've always wanted to ask a writer of a book. I mean, I'm a musician, so I, People don't ever very rarely ask good questions to musicians. I guess they don't think we're capable of speaking. <laughs> You're kidding. I love musicians. No, I'm just kidding. But when, when you got done with the book and you look at it, and, and it's just a tremendous book, and, and it obviously will propel you to, to some of these things that you want to do, is there anything you wished you'd put in here that, that you didn't get in here? You know, the only thing... And again, this would have to be utopia. If I wanted this book to be full disclosure, mm-hmm. and there are things that you can't say always, you know, sure. if you don't want to hurt somebody, you have to make that choice. Yeah. Whether is it okay to just hurt someone, or are you going to, you know, maybe not discuss certain things? And yeah. that's the only thing. You know, other than that, no, there's not another thing that I wish was in that book. Lynn, we want to thank you very much from um, you know from the show one hour at a time and from Westbridge and Mary Woods wants to thank you. Uh, we really appreciate appreciate you coming on, and well, good luck in your endeavors. It was my pleasure. I told endeavors. you this hour was way too short. I know. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye, everybody. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One Hour at a Time. We'll see you next week.